Hello, everyone. This is Kayvon. And this is Ali. And we're here recording the second episode of the Persian Breakfast Club. We had planned this week to actually record about the Iranian movie Lizard, but there has been a lot going on in Iran, and we felt compelled to actually record an episode that addresses the situation currently happening in the country, as there have been a massive wave of protests in the last I don't know, two or so weeks. On September 16th, a 22-year-old Iranian woman named Masa Amini was, she's a a Kurdish woman visiting from Kurdistan, was detained by morality police in Tehran for violating the woman's dress code. And she died a few days later. Many people suspect that what happened while she was in custody is that the Iranian authorities physically assaulted her. Amini died three days after she was arrested in hospital, falling into a coma. And the picture of her in, in a comatose state has, has gone viral, which is partially what sparked the big wave of, wave of protests that we've seen over, over the last two weeks. Authorities, of course, are denying beating Amini and have insisted that the cause of death was cardiac failure, which her family insists that she has had no history of having had issues with. But according to Reuters, what, ha- what happened is, is that, actually we said September 16th, so September 13th. Yes, September 13th is when she was arrested. September 16th is when she died. She was on a train, she was arrested, confronted by the morality police for for wearing tight trousers. According again to this report, you know she was begging for the police to show some mercy, uh, saying they weren't familiar with the rules in in Tehran. And eventually, they took her into custody. And typically in Iran, they put you in a van with a group of other people. And the other women who were riding in the van with her told her family that that she was beaten on the head. And, you know, again, the family has had no access to a CT scan, but there have been reports that there was a fracture to the skull, which has ultimately caused hemorrhaging and which is why she died. And, you know, the story seems very, very plausible. In any case, these deaths have sparked protests across the country, mainly focused against the dress code for women that caused Amini to be arrested in in the first place. And um, yeah, Ali, what are what are we doing today? So we've decided to invite Seamus Madakafseli, a independent journalist. Uh, you might know him from Twitter. Uh, we're going to ask him some questions about the protests, the cause of the protests, how they've spread, and some of the implications as well. Here's our interview with Seamus. My name is Kayvon, and I am joined today by my co-host, Ali, and we are very excited to have Seamus Malik Afsali with us, who is a journalist and a writer currently residing in Paris, France. And Seamus will be talking to us today about the situation in Iran. Seamus, thanks for being here. I'm happy to be on the only program that has ever pronounced my last name correctly on the first try. That's Those are the perks of... You know, being on a on a Persian podcast. It's a wonderful thing. I appreciate it. Ali, do you want to get the discussion started? Sure. Let's let's just jump right in. So I think most people understand that the 
mandatory veil is a controversial law in Iran. Uh, there's a lot of opposition to it. Clearly, there's people willing to die in opposition to the veil. But we also, I think, have to reckon with the fact that there was popular support for this law after the revolution. And I was wondering, Seamus, why do you think that is? What, what was the driver of support for the mandatory veil back in the revolutionary period? After the revolution, you know, a lot of people were at the time extremely religious. And there was a perception that the westernization of Iran that had happened under the Shah, wherein there was a lot of not necessarily nudity, but a lot of skin showing in Iranian film. There was a prevalence of women in advertising. There was an increased amount of women in the workforce and so on and so forth, and increased visibility, especially among wealthy women who were unveiled, who did not obviously wear the chador, that piece of clothing, that there needed to be, just as there needed to be a sort of cleansing of westernization from Iran with the overthrow of the Shah, that that also needed to be accompanied by a abolishment of Western clothing norms. And when the Islamic Republic came into being, the idea of not having mandatory hijab, of not enforcing it by law, was an unpopular notion. It was, I, I can't remember the exact poll numbers off the top of my head, but I want to say 86% of Iranians in 1986, during the height of the Iran-Iraq war, backed the idea of mandatory hijab only over the decades has that become an unpopular position as Iranians become more, not necessarily irreligious, but less observant of a strict Islamic faith, a strict Shia faith. And as obviously there is more interaction with the Western world, there is more uh, interaction with the internet, with globalization. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a pretty even slope, as it were. And do you think the hijab was not just a religious marker, but also a political marker during the revolutionary period? I would say so. It, it marks you as an ally of the incoming Islamic Republic. If you were an unveiled woman, you could be any number of things. You could be, uh, you could be a communist. You could be you know, a supporter of the Shah. You could be any number of political ideologies that were not aligned with the Islamic Republic. And that would put you in opposition to it. Mm. Something that you mentioned, Seamus, the country has undergone some kind of cultural transformation. I mean, living when I was living in Iran, I remember getting satellite television and being introduced to movies, shows, music from from the West, but also... At the time, there was this wave of reforms occurring across the country, and it was it was very popular among both among people who lived in urban areas in you know more metropolitan areas of the country, but also somewhat uh, you know among the the conservatives who lived in the more rural areas. And you mentioned that the country has has culturally changed since then. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? What has happened in the last perhaps like two, three decades that has now brought us to this moment where a lot of people don't seem to be on board with the idea of mandatory dress codes. You make the mention of the satellite TV boom, and that absolutely has something to do with it. 
the Parliamentary Research Center of the Iranian parliament came to this exact same conclusion in which they, determining any number of factors, included the onset of satellite TV, this exposure to other facets of global society, as part of the reason why the hijab as a mandatory notion uh, became less and less popular. Starting in the, the late 90s uh, and the early 2000s, there was a move toward economic liberalization uh, with the presidency of uh, Rafsanjani. You know, many industries began to be privatized. There was an explosion in GDP and engagement with other economies. Then from that, there was a move toward reformism as a political ideology. And President Khatami came into power with a very wide mandate to conduct those reforms. However, while there was a, a thawing of sorts in terms of the rights that people had in Iran at that time, there was a significant rollback and Khatami was unable to make sure a lot of the reforms that he wanted to do, he was not able to make them happen. Mm -hmm. And that inability for the Islamic Republic to reform, that inability for it to, to really change in any sort of meaningful way, that also helps accelerate these notions, especially among younger people who have grown up their entire lives under the Islamic Republic. It accelerates those notions that more and more things need to change. Because if there's no way to change it through voting for a new president, if there's no way to change it between voting for a new representative, then the solutions that you have in your mind become more and more outside of the system. Right, right. I remember also when Khatami was elected president, people were euphoric because they, they saw this opening for the first time. For, of possibility of, of genuine reforms. And, you know, of course, over the course of the, the next eight years, he wasn't able to deliver on many of those promises. Presidency was, as we, many of our listeners are hopefully aware of, followed by the presidency of Ahmadinejad. But Ali, I'll toss it back to you because you have, you have a question about uh, these protests that are, that are ongoing right now. Yeah, I was going to ask, how do these protests compare to previous mass protests in Iran, specifically the 2009 Green Movement protests and the fuel protests in 2019? And perhaps you can give a little context about the 2009 protests and the 2019 protests as well. Uh, the 2009 protests started, I, I believe, after the election, the second, the re-election of Ahmadinejad. And he, he was contending against a uh, reformist candidate. Uh, who many suspected had actually won the election or would have won if right. not for vote tampering. And of course, we don't really know for sure, but many millions of Iranians believe that and they poured out into the streets. And at that time, the protest was more of a protest in the system, right? It was, uh, we want to have this president, uh, we want reforms and we want, you know, engagement with the West. But now it seems as if people have kind of given up on that notion. And then the 2019 protests were during a period of rapid inflation. And, and I, I believe some fuel subsidies were removed. Uh, so that, that the class makeup of that protest was also slightly different because it was more of an economic protest. Yeah, yeah. I think in this in this specific instance, there are certain things that are unprecedented, at least in terms of the modern history of protests under the Islamic Republic in which both the middle class in Tehran and in other places like it 
and working class people in Kurdistan, among some other places, are protesting at the same moment. Most of the time in different protest movements, these sectors have protested at different times and thus they do not threaten the government at the same time. Uh, additionally, there have been protesters who have overrun local government municipality buildings, uh, which has never been seen before. Multiple ones happened in Mozendaran that I saw. Additionally, there was even a town in Kurdistan, in West, uh, sorry, not Kurdistan, in a West Azerbaijan province, Oshnevie, which was overrun by protesters completely for a couple hours before the government came back in and retook it. But in terms of actually being an active threat to the government's structure, the system itself. At the current moment, it seems like it is not as well positioned as 2009 were, as 2019 was. Uh, in 2009, the government cracked down hard, obviously. It was a massive movement in favor of Mousavi, the presidential candidate for the reformists. And in hindsight, when they were reflecting back on it, Iranian officials have said that that was a moment in which the Islamic Republic came the closest to falling. And in 2019, the speed of the uprising among the working class was so rapid and was so intense. They were burning banks, they were burning police stations. And in response, the Iranian military cracked down hard. They turned off the internet virtually completely. Uh, and they killed hundreds of people. Right now, the protests have gone on for longer. The internet is being filtered in some places, but it's not a complete shutdown. And the deaths, while they are racking up, they are not as numerous as in 2019. So I think the government is betting that these protests will perhaps burn themselves out, as other protest movements have done so in the past. But it's not a surety uh, at the current moment. And so we know that the primary demand of the protesters, or at least the one that's most often shown in Western media, is the removal of mandatory veiling. But I was wondering if you think the protests have grown beyond that, uh, and if there are any specific demands, or is it more of just a general outburst of anger towards, towards the Islamic Republic? They almost immediately became about taking down the Islamic Republic as a system. I think only in the first couple of days or so were the chants primarily about the hijab. And then after that, it became chants of, primarily chants of death to the dictator, death to Khamenei, down with the Islamic Republic, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it, it, it has very much grown beyond that into chants that are, have been typically, it's not, it's not a new thing. Obviously, these chants have been heard and, practically every protest movement in the modern republic's history. But it has certainly grown beyond that simple demand, at least from their words. Uh, in practice, that's a different story. Do the protesters want the Shah back? <laughs> they don't. Uh, it's, actually, it's actually quite fascinating. In a lot of other protest spats, uh, I'm not sure about 2019, but I moved back in 2018, or 2020, there are instances where people would gather and they chant for the Islamic Republic to um, abandon foreign aid to Palestine and to Lebanon and also to 
to they would chant for the memory of Reza Shah, uh, who was the first uh, Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty. While that is not necessarily a monarchist chant, it's more of an invocation toward a time in Iran's history that was anti-clericalist and was preoccupied with modernization. Uh, it's not exactly a democratic chant either. Right. <laughs> but there is a reason why, even though there has been in the media this focus on uh, Reza Pahlavi, the son of the last Shah, uh, bringing him to the forefront and monarchist news networks really hounding on it. There is a very curious divide between what they will publish and what videos actually coming out are, which in that in that the fact that they don't publish videos where the protesters, for example, in Tehran are chanting both against the Shah and against his Republic, mainly because that conflicts with their narrative about who Iranian people actually want. Spoiler alert, it's not a return to another dictatorial kind of system. Right. So what has been the response from the Biden administration and their European allies to to the protests happening in Iran right now? The government response has been pretty typical. You know, they issue some statements in favor of it calling the Iranian government to respect them. Maybe a couple of them have recalled their ambassadors for, you know, to, to answer for it. But there has been nothing in the way of, like, actual concrete steps past sanctioning guidance patrol officials, which isn't really going to do much since guidance patrol officials typically do not interact with the American economic system. Right. But so far, there have been no calls to... I don't know, give them arms or or do anything past the usual kind of rhetoric. Right. So, Seamus, you see this on Twitter a lot of various leftist cliques accusing each other of being CIA, accusing uh, any number of things of being CIA. I was wondering, do you think the fears of clandestine U.S. involvement in these protests is justified? I think the inclination towards being suspicious is not an unjustified one. I mean, obviously, Iran has a huge, well-storied history of Western interference, false flags, specifically paying off people during protests, coup, coup attempts, whatever. But in this particular instance, I don't think that there has been any evidence of that. There is a very clear cut-and-dry cause and response uh, that has occurred here. While this is a result of things that have bubbled under the surface for a long time, uh, this is not spontaneously manifested out of the ether. And so far, I think it's very telling that people who have been accusing the protests of being either a CIA op or uh, some Western invention are not engaging with the actual cause of the protests because if you did, it would immediately, I think, call your, your credentials as a left-winger into some amount of question. I mean, it's a, it's a right-wing religious police coming in. Someone dies in police custody, and people are obviously upset about that. I, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't, it, nothing about it has struck me as particularly um, 
a CIA invention. Yeah. And I mean, they're kind of comparable uh, to, you know, to the response to, I don't know, George Floyd in the United States. I mean, I don't know if that comparison is the most apt one. Well, the defense of the Iranian government is certainly very similar to the Derek Chauvin. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, this this is the case of person who died under circumstances that seem to have been clearly avoidable. She was beaten in custody, very, very likely. And even if that that narrative is is not true, clearly what happened there was a contributor to her death in some shape or form. Nonetheless, this is a tragedy that could have been avoided. And people are upset about the fact that a young person died for no particularly good reason, besides the fact that she she was wearing tight trousers. And, you know, I think naturally people would be upset by such a tragedy. So it's an organic response in that sense to something that they perceive to be cruel. And it's very much similar to what happened in the U.S. Now, you know, you can make the case that sure, maybe the organizers of these movements have t- have suspicious ties to the government. But this is not a, you know, this is not a protest that's being led by anyone, right? It's a leaderless event. It's a leaderless movement, Yeah, I think there should be a difference established here between instigation and exploitation. Um, There is no evidence that the United States or 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 really any power instigated these protests in that what they did directly started these protests. There is heaping evidence that America, Israel, uh, whomever, are exploiting these protests for their own gain in their foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Wall to wall, doesn't matter if it's outlet backed by Saudi Arabia or if it's the uh, Israeli government's Persian language account or Voice of America Farsi, you know, it, it's they are trying their best to make you believe that these protests are for Western objectives because they are hoping that that is the case. But there is no evidence at this moment to, there's no real evidence to support the idea that the majority of these protesters are going to go in a direction that America wants them to, uh, with all the, the trappings that that requires. Right. So this is a, this is a good segue into uh, our next topic, which is uh, the response in Western media, specifically, you know, liberal newspapers uh, on CNN, there was a clip of Ali Najad, Messi Ali Najad. She's probably the most famous uh, Iranian American dissident, or even just diaspora dissident, opposition to the Islamic Republic. And she was on CNN saying that the <laughs> the Iranian people are asking for yeah, sanctions, uh, which I don't know where. I, I, where I, she I don't. I don't, I don't like this woman. I need to be clear. I'm sorry if that breaks decorum. Um, She's one of the sponsors of the show. <laughs> No, that that is the official podcast uh, position, I think, so it's okay. Because the Iranian regime have their own lobbyists, apologists. They're all over around the world just trying to convince the West to get a nuclear deal. But I'm here to echo the voice of Iranian people within the society, actually uh, asking a simple demand that while we're getting killed in Iran, stop negotiating with Mm. our murderers. But yeah, there was also an article in The New Yorker, which I think you posted about it, where, you know, she was portrayed as, uh, as, as the leader of this movement, partially because she's made her brand from being a social media, you know, poster who 
collects images of women without the headscarf, the hijab. And now, now she's being presented to the American public as, as having inspired this movement. Yeah, uh, Messi Ali Najad used to be a reporter for a lot of reformist outlets in Iran during the 2000s, after which she fled the United States and began working for Voice of America as a paid media personality. She's directly paid by the U.S. government. This is not my conjecture. There are numerous investigations to this effect, and also it's obvious she's on uh, U.S. state media. She's met with the United States Secretary of State, the former one, Mike Pompeo, uh, who has made Iranian regime change his you know, main drive in life. She's also met with Reza Pahlavi, uh, hugged him on camera, and she has made her deal going on news networks, either Iranian, either Persian language or American or whatever, to advocate for, one, the removal of hijab laws, which is fine. Or two, advocating for more maximum pressure on Iran, which is less fine. I, I, I wish there was like a more polite way to say this, but she's she has a huge head on her um, in terms of how self-important she sees herself. And it comes across in virtually all of her interviews. She fake cries. She yells. She gets very pointed, she acts as if she's giving a speech to a very large audience, even if she's giving an interview you know, along a desk. And in terms of the influence she has within Iran, I can't say that there is zero. Obviously, she has interacted with Iranian women. There are, there are videos to that effect where they are addressing her. But, you know, there are also Maoists in Iran. There are also anarchists in Iran. Their existence does not predicate them being the leaders of any revolution. I mean, this has happened before. Back in, I want to say, 2017, 2018, there were anti-hijab protests. They were not nearly as widespread, but they were there. Many of them, if you recall, there was the video of the woman with the white hijab that she had placed on a stick and was Mm -hmm. waving it like a flag. And that was Mm -hmm. a popular symbol. Mm -hmm. But... Messi, either, I can't remember if she herself asserted this or if other people asserted it for her, presented her as the one of the leaders of this movement. And numerous Iranian women in Iran had to come out and say, no, no woman is bringing this woman up just because there is a similarity between some of the hijabs that people are wearing during these protests or, or waving during these protests and her call for White Wednesdays, where people will, will go without hijabs, I believe that was the that was the objective on Wednesdays. That does not mean that she herself is, is a is a leader here. And the same seems to be happening here now. I have never seen any chant for Messi. I have never seen any protester bring up Messi. I have never seen any invocation toward Messi from any protester on the planet. The, the women who are leading these protests on the ground are pretty much nameless. They have been in this in in the mix here, uh, and the sea is not. Right, right. She, I think, her profile has has grown somewhat bigger and brighter in 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 the last couple of years because you know there was this there was this alleged plot by the Iranian government. I I don't know much 
about the details of this plot. I don't I don't think they've been released. It's an it's an FBI case. But there was this alleged plot organized by the Iranian government to to kidnap her. Is that right? This is this is accurate. There have been numerous plots against Messi's life, according to the U.S. government, and the degrees of plausibility on them range from likely to plainly absurd. I think there was one instance where a person came with a gun to her house. I fully believe that. I, mm. I fully believe that that is something that happened to her, mainly because there was video uh, of this interaction. That was <laughs> actually. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Don't worry, I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> I can't go to jail, man. Um, um, okay. But there was another case. That was, I think, the most publicized one. I believe it, it came out in either Reuters or the Wall Street Journal, in which the plot, as it was described, was that Iran was going to kidnap Messi and take her, I believe, in a speedboat down to, I, I want to say, Venezuela. And then they would take her to Iran from there. Now, it's not impossible for a speedboat to make this journey from U.S. territory to Venezuela. However, I think that that's not something that any government would suggest and go through the planning stages to the point where it was an active threat. Right. I think that is something that maybe someone maybe proposed and it never got off the ground, much in the same way that Bush proposed bombing Al Jazeera in Qatar, and that never happened. But I, I don't know if I, I buy the idea that uh, that was ever an actual threat against her. It just sounds like a really clumsy plan. Yeah, it sounds more like a bad spy novel. No, no, no. It, it's completely out of the realm of any uh, reasonable person um, to suggest. Kayvon and I uh, read uh, one article, one fawning article about her. I'm sure there's many. This one's in The New Yorker. They quoted her as saying that uh, she's so worried about Iran. Well, first of all, she lives in an FBI safe house. And then also it's very funny because the article says she's unpaid. Which, <laughs> but not only is she paid, but she's also being like, she gets free, a free house during the FBI. It's like, it's ridiculous. Like, who do you know in your real life that, that lives like this? But anyway. How does she maintain that seriously? I mean, she's, she's an employee of Voice of America, well, well, every single, nearly every single news outlet that interviews her does not reference her either. If they reference her as Voice of America, they don't reference the fact that Voice of America is a U.S. government institution. Right. And or they just straight up don't mention that she's a member of Voice of America at all. They just position her as a journalist, mm -hmm. which grants, it a, grants her a certain level of credulity, mm. um, which she doesn't have. <laughs> so uh, for this article, the uh, writer interviews her in a coffee shop, and he says that someone recognizes her in the coffee shop, and she's worried that it's an Iranian agent, so they have to leave and, and do the interview somewhere else. But I'm just thinking, like, it could also just be someone who hates her, like, just wants to spit on her, you know, and then she's just saying, like, this is an, uh, this is an Iranian agent, we have to leave. Or it's someone who has just seen her on TV because she's on that, all of yeah, these networks. Right. No, I mean, that's no, the most it's, likely. It's pure. Yeah. No, I mean, Dexter Filkins, the author of this, goddamn, this guy uh, sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's, he is known for his reporting on uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I know that uh, Ali Kharib, who is a editor for The Intercept, right. uh, he met Filkins. 
And despite Filkins covering Afghanistan as as his profession, he won a Pulitzer for it. Uh, he does not speak any Farsi. He does not speak any Persian at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and he uses U.S. Department, State Department sources and Israeli sources so often that they they fill up the page if you were just to list them all just from like one singular article that he's written. He's a, he's a, he's a hack. And there's a very funny, uh, funny line. I mean, there's multiple, but this one is very funny to me. This is a direct quote, quoting Ali Najad. I have never taken any money from a foreign government, she told me. <laughs> and then in parentheses, Ali Najad works for Voice of America, which is funded by the U.S. government. But she says her activism is separate from her work for the organization. <laughs> so she has like dual personalities. That's their defense for her. Yeah. yeah. Like what is she doing on Voice of America? Magic tricks? No, no, no. I, I assume two things. One, I know that, that was an addition after the article came out. Yes. They changed the they changed the title of the article as well. What did they change it to? Well, originally they said that she was the leader of the movement. And then I think they changed it to she fueled the movement. Oh, even still, that that's still that's still nonsense. But I assume she justifies it herself by saying, like, well, it's not a foreign government. You know, it's the government of the country that I live in. But the, the other thing is there, she definitely also gets money, like, just, you know, in a roundabout way from foreign governments because of her appearances on, on Iran International and, and Manoto. And, you know, any, I don't know if she's still on Manoto now, but th- that's a way of getting money from a foreign government. It's not direct, but that's where the funding for these programs comes from. Yeah, perhaps, Seamus, you can talk a little bit about these organizations because – you know, they, they, Iran International, Manitou, these are, these are outlets that, you know, a lot of Western media rely on to, to present the news of what's been going on. What, what, what are these entities? What do they do? What are their ties, et cetera? Tell us a little, a little bit about them. Iran International and Manitou, like, as you said, those are the big two opposition news networks for Farsi speaking audiences. Iran International uh, was found by The Guardian to have direct Saudi backing. To what degree that backing exists uh, is not clear. But I mean, you know, the sets that they have, the amount of reporters they employ, they have correspondents in so many different locales and locations. It's obviously a lot of money. Manoto, I, I believe, is a smaller of the two. but And I don't know precisely where it gets its uh, funding from, but it is very much in that same ideological spectrum. Iran International positions itself as slightly more neutral, but Manoto is pretty firmly in the monarchist camp, even if they don't admit it plainly. Their, yeah, their whole job is to provide rolling 24-7 news coverage of Iran, world affairs in general from an Iranian perspective, but Iranian affairs in particular. They typically focus on the negative workings of the Iranian government, what's been going wrong, protest movements, wherever they may uh, pop up, strikes, these kinds of things. They have to portray a certain image that is not necessarily neutral. And that's, that's fine. It's, it's, what a, it's what a news network does. But obviously, it has, a, it has an agenda in mind that is moving towards regime change. That is its goal, basically. Right. Ali, there was also another article that we read. This was an article in, in The Atlantic written by Roya Hakakian, who is who's a poet, a writer. Self-proclaimed poet, we need to be clear. The article is called The Bonfire of Headscarves. <sighs> but, you know, the article kind of presents a picture of what's going on. And 
talks a lot about American values of freedom and democracy being imported into Iran. Do you want to do you want to just like, you know, walk us a little bit through the article or like, you know, what your impressions of this? this because this was another piece of writing that got a lot of circulation on social media. Yeah, this is this was bad. I don't <laughs> I don't really know how to I can't I can't give it any kind of respect that I might give like a different article that I might disagree with. It, it's fundamentally ignorant of seemingly every protest that has ever happened in Iran. It's quite astonishing. And especially because she herself is a, is a Persian woman. You would think that she would have some kind of interaction with that history. It, it posits that this protest movement is so overwhelmingly unique that it is like the first one that has ever called for the downfall of the Zanuck Republic, which it isn't. And it also posits it as a uniquely American phenomenon, an American-inspired phenomenon. When protests against the mandatory hijab had been a thing since 1979, it was one of the first protests right. against the incoming Islamic Republic administration. Well, you see, America America invented women's rights. So oh, sure. Another well, I, mean, I mean, look... I went to a liberal school. I, I, sh- I should have learned that, but you know how it is. Yeah, but, but you, let me just read the, the particular passage you're referring to. Somehow, despite the virtual absence of relationships between Iran and the U.S. for more than four decades, those two vital American ideas about rights and choice have made their way into the country. You know, that's that's an outrageous claim. I, I, I it, it presents these two opposing ideas that work in tandem that are also completely incorrect. One that there has been no no relations between the United States and Iran up until uh, this very moment that, that it's like North Korea or even less sus, a sub-North Korean dictatorship in which no outside information comes in. And also the idea is that uh, Iranians have never valued value and choice. I mean, there was a democracy in, in the 50s that, that was built on these kinds of rights and responsibilities. And the article then moves into the idea of this being like Ukraine and how we need to, the United States needs to give support to the Iranian people like they did with Ukraine. And I think the exact term that they use, I want to see if I have the quote in front of me. Yeah, Iran has reached its Ukrainian moment, the time when a people realize that they are willing to pay the price for their freedom. It's very rare that a pro-American article like this seems to like bulldoze past all the protesters who have died before. Um, I mean, hundreds of people like the reformists, I think, believe that 600 some people died in 2019. I, I don't get how that doesn't fit under that umbrella unless you don't know about it, which I firmly believe this woman doesn't. It's a strikingly ignorant piece of media, which says something about who is editing the Atlantic when it comes to these issues and the quality of the pieces that they put out, which wasn't a surprise. The Atlantic is awful, but, you know, it it, it reinforces that notion. Yeah. And she isn't unique in that regard. I've probably gone a little grayer in the last week or so reading a lot of the commentary that Persian expats are offering on social media, especially people with ties to 
these various think tanks, Atlantic Council, for instance, you know, has an entire wing of people who are who are writing and publishing about Iran. I've seen so many of these takes and I kind of go back and forth because on the one hand, of course, you know, I want a united front, or at least I want to entertain the idea that there could be a united front that supports these protests. But on the other hand, it's also, I think, really important to try and salvage the narrative that these people are trying to present to their American audiences, that these are pro-West, pro-monarchy you know, protests, that their sympathies uh, among the protesters for Reza Pahlavi and, you know, they're being led by the United States, all of which, you know, of course, the Iranian government will use to delegitimize the protest. But, you know, these two people who we've talked about, Masih Alinejad and Roya Kakyan, they don't seem to be unique in, in, in that sense. They just represent, you know, part of this problem that has been that has been gnawing and nagging at the community for a long time, especially, you know, parts of the community that are left-leaning. It's kind of incredible to me that both Alinejad and Hakakian both suggest that the Iranian people support sanctions. I don't, it's, it's really like, yeah. why do they even have to say that? They could just ignore the issue. I mean, the, the nuclear talks are stalled anyway. But now they're, they're saying that the U.S. should double down on, on refusing to negotiate with the Iranian government because then, of course, that would help uh, freedom in some way. I don't even know what. Yeah. I mean, Ali Najad, as part of her campaign of maximum sanctions for a long time, has been also advocating for sports federations to ban Iranian athletes from international competitions, including, you know, the FIFA World Cup, which has taken place in Qatar. You know, for a long time, right. she's advocated for uh, FIFA to exclude Iran from this event that they, you know, they've qualified for. Something that it's truly a source of joy in Iranian society because football right. is such a it's, huge it's part of it. It's beyond politics. It seems like a very stupid position for her to take just pragmatically. And and saying that and saying that in particular because there are players on the national team who have backed the protests too. It boggles the mind being that out of touch with what the Iranian public want when you are so invested in your own diaspora circles you have this feedback loop where everybody else wants sanctions and that makes you want to put more sanctions on them and at a certain point you have just separated yourself from what iranian people actually want entirely right right what has the response of the iranian government been to the protests and also do you think that certain factions of the government are perhaps using this as an excuse to further consolidate power the Iranian government has taken a lot of narratives that might seem a little bit familiar if you remember how particularly American officials respond to anti-police protests. There is a lot of emphasis on preserving law and order about how public property needs to be protected, promoting thanking police officers for what they do. There was a viral video that circulated uh, around conservative circles where where, where two women in, in chadors uh, handed roses to um, some cops that they that they walked by during a counter protest. It has been a time for the government supporters to be mobilized and to show their numbers and to show organization in contrast to the spontaneity and the disorganization of the protesters. In terms of consolidating power, I haven't seen that quite yet. 
there was not, I think, a critical enough situation for there to be a need to close ranks or to purge people Mm -hmm. necessarily, if that's what you're aiming toward. It's not, there, there has been a, there have been arrests of celebrities and there have been arrests of journalists for sure, but that is not something that is unique to the situation. Obviously these things have happened numerous times before. So not anything out of the ordinary, I would say. So, Seamus, why do you think the Iranian government refuses to budge on the issue of the headscarf, given that it's increasingly unpopular, it's often broken? I mean, of course, in this case, it was enforced and people became very upset by the result, but it's often not enforced, especially in in Tehran and in urban areas and cosmopolitan areas. And also it hurts the country's image. And I think it hurts the, the soft power of Iran. You know, the Islamic Republic has learned, I think, very effectively uh, the lessons of why the Shah fell and why the imperial system uh, was so fragile. It's what's led to why there are so many different structures of power in the current Islamic Republic, why everything is so complex and why there are so many autonomous agencies and, and different systems. As long as it's not top-down there is much more of an ability for the system to survive. And part of that strategy to learn from the failures of the Shah and to preserve the system as it exists now is not to show weakness. And if there is a move toward getting rid of the mandatory hijab specifically in response to these protests... That is a signal of weakness. That is a signal that the government is responsive positively to street protests. And once that blood is in the water, it can never be taken back out again. That is a signal that as long as the protests get bigger, that they can extract more demands and the system is in danger of falling. As long as the the Iranian government cannot budge on this without endangering everything else. And they do know that, you know, there is a space potentially, I don't think it's actually going to happen. There is a space potentially built in within the system to suggest changes to the penal code, to the Islamic dress code in order to get rid of the hijab. And there have been moves from people in the government and in parliament, you know, cabinet ministers to maybe go in that direction in response to these protests. But I don't think that the president, I don't think the Supreme Leader is going to listen to either of them. They understand the gravity of the situation, even if it is a very comparatively small part of the the situation at large. Because it's it's a like it or not, it is it it, it could potentially be not necessarily a dom- an immediate domino effect, but it it unnecessarily, from their perspective, it unnecessarily endangers other aspects of the system and what it is able to do. Do you think the system is endangered at this moment? No, no, it's not. It's it's only a it is a future fear that they have that it could fall in the same way that the Shah did if 
any sort of demands are are granted to the protesters ever. That does not mean that the government is going to fall now. It doesn't mean the government is going to fall 10 years from now. There are other checks and balances outside of this that prevent that from happening. I, 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 I do need to be clear that there is no earthly possibility that these protests are going to take down the Senate Republic. They don't have the numbers. You know, it maybe won't take down the government, but there is a fear that, you know, if you bend on the hijab, there is a fear that, you know, you could bend on wanting political party, want, uh, not you know, banning certain political parties uh, in parliament. There could be uh, needed to, needing to bend on uh, female candidates for the presidency. Little things, but they are little things that dig at the nature of the Tsar Republic as a religious, overtly and overwhelmingly religious state. But do you think this is a major turning point in the history of dissidents and protest in in Iran against the government, especially, you know, since we, and I think you alluded to this, there has been quite a lot of support for these protests from from figures who are very popular in Iranian society, footballers, actors, athletes of, you know, of various kinds, you know, some of whom have, have, have also said that they will be resigning from from the national teams. And this is not something that we've seen on this scale before, right? I think this is a turning point in terms of the perception of the hijab and the acceptability of going out without it. Uh, I just saw today there was an act, there was a famous actress, I wish I remembered her name at the moment, but she went to a public funeral to speak without wearing the hijab. I think in that respect, it might be. But in the way that I think most people would view a turning point, I don't believe that it is. Um, Not at the current moment uh, in terms of actually actively changing things legally at society at a base level. Well, you heard it here first, guys. Uh, Seamus does not support the protest. Oh, oi, 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 this is, uh, look, look. I was going to ask, what has the response been from some of the bigger celebrities in the West and business leaders, specifically Elon Musk? How is he going to save save the day here? Well, um, I, I trust you're all familiar with Starlink, the satellite internet system, which is a consistent eyesore. I've, uh, I invested in that. Eye. <laughs> how, how is it an, I've, I've heard of it. I, how is it an eyesore? Because you can see it in the night sky when it goes by. Oh, it's that? It's big? visible. You can see okay. it, at least from the videos that I've seen. I haven't personally seen it, but there are videos of it, and it's very evident. It's a satellite internet system, and curiously, um, despite the fact that we have been told forever that sanctions are, are impossible to relieve on Iran uh, at the current moment. Uh, they did relieve certain ones related to the internet so that Starlink could be utilized. Uh, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, announced that a couple of days ago. To my knowledge, I don't think Starlink has been set up yet uh, in Iran. I'm not, I'm not sure how long that takes. But I also saw a thread uh, on Twitter about how easy it is to find uh, where these systems are set up and how that is a massive vulnerability. So I can't imagine it is going to be a terribly long-lived system if it goes up. But I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a way for him to be epic 
but uh, he's never he's never broken a promise before. No, 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 no. I'm very happy with my self-driving car and the fact that I'm going to go to Mars uh, next month for holiday. I love Musk. I love what he does. You know, Seamus, you've you've been very gracious talking to us for for actually an hour uh, now, and we we just want to give you the opportunity to plug anything you might want to maybe mention your your Twitter handle, though. You know, you're very very popular uh, among various various segments of Twitter. But yeah, if you have anything to to promote or plug, yeah, um, I mean, I have a Twitter, Seamus underscore Malik. Uh, you can follow me. I post all kinds of crazy ass thoughts uh, on there. Um, I uh, also have a Substack where I write about Middle East affairs, uh, malikafsali.substack.com. Uh, and also, if you don't give a shit about anything that I've talked about here today, there is a Substack where I talk about films that you've never seen. Uh, and maybe we'll have you on to talk about a movie sometime. Oh my yes. god, I do write about Iranian movies on there as well. Um, burntnitrate.substack.com. That is that one. And uh, yeah, I got a uh, yeah, I got I got nothing else. You want my home address? Hey, what happened to your podcast, The Greatest Sin? Oh, um, there were, uh, come to George, they're on to us. All right. Well, thanks so much, Seamus. We look forward to having you back on to talk about other things Iran related or not Iran related. You know, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, Seamus. Of course. I'm honored to be on the program. Do 